Everybody loves McDonald's fries. So, yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Revolt Black News, presented by State Farm. Tonight on Revolt Black News, there's a Haitian immigration crisis since the earthquake. But which earthquake? We look back at the 2010 disaster and why Haiti immigration is so historically different compared to others seeking refuge in America and how it all relates to the Texas border today. Then we kick off our mayoral race series and we say welcome to Atlanta with Sandy Springs mayoral candidate Dante Carter. Over in College Park, Georgia, the CEO of Gunner's Grocery Store is making sure that everybody's eating. SpaceX makes history and the future looks bright. He's learning about space launch in his freshman year at Georgia Tech, but he's not even old enough to drive a car. 13-year-old Caleb Anderson joins. And Yersane Bolt says that rules are rules, but he and Shikari Richardson might be fast friends. We've got all of that and much more tonight on Revolt Black News. Welcome to Revolt Black News. I'm your host, Ebony K. Williams. We begin tonight with the turmoil in Texas as Border Patrol agents are following the Biden administration's directives to deport over 12,000 Haitian immigrants back to the devastated Caribbean country. Now, after several thousands traveled from Mexico to temporary camps under the Del Rio International Bridge, U.S. authorities boarded them for a one-way flight back to their home country. So how did they make the 1,900-mile trek? How dangerous was it? And why did it end in immediate expulsion? Over the past year, American mainstream media has made its stance clear on immigration issues at large. Some of this might be rooted in racism. We don't know where they are, and we don't know what they're doing. On the right, alarm and verbal sirens. And on the left, blind spots and omissions. Now, while around 13,000 Haitians made their way to the American southern border via Mexico, Brazil, and Chile since the 7.2 magnitude earthquake, and it's vital to specify which earthquake because Haitians have been immigrating since the historic 2010 disaster. Both South and Central America have been popular, albeit life-risking routes taken by refugees. Most notorious for Haitians is the Darien Gap, this jungle dividing Panama and Colombia is also the menacing forest that remains the life-threatening line between potential human trafficking and possible safety. As for Vice President Kamala Harris. We have to understand Haiti. I mean, talk about a country that has just experienced so much. As a member of the Western Hemisphere, we've got to support some very basic needs that the people of Haiti have. So as more immigrants continue to be expelled this week, some are recalling the Statue of Liberty's 1883 ode to immigrants. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. While others are reciting Childish Gambino's prolific 2018 hit, this is America. This is America. Now taking a closer look at the Haitian immigration and deportation crisis at the Texas border is founder and executive director of Incultured Company, France Francois. Also with us is Grammy-nominated Haitian-American singer and songwriter, as well as a humanitarian, Melky Jean. Ladies, welcome to the show. 
Now, reports show that the Haitian refugees have begun these life or death migration missions as they relate, of course, to a, a litany of things, natural disasters, um, the obvious political uh, just debacle that's happening in Haiti. And all of this actually all goes back to the 2010 earthquake uh, that many people are still healing from. How do you think that those journeys turned out? I'll start with you, France. Sure, thanks for the question. I think that it's important to put mm -hmm. the 2010 earthquake in context that the when the earthquake happened, Brazil and Chile and other parts of Latin America were experiencing an economic boom. And they used this mm -hmm. opportunity to create visas that attracted cheap labor from Haiti. At the same time, we were told that Haiti was going to build back better with the $10 billion that was allocated and raised for um, earthquake relief and then reconstruction. What happened in reality, what we saw on the ground, was that less than 1% of that money actually went to the Haitian government or Haitian-led initiatives. The majority of that money actually went to U.S. humanitarian organizations. That money went right back to Washington. It went back to Brussels. It went back to Toronto. And so people took this opportunity that Brazil and Chile and others were providing to take work visas and go and start a what they hoped for was a better life elsewhere. But when they got there in reality, they realized that mm -hmm. the conditions that they were met with oftentimes was not what they had expected, which has caused people to take this journey mm -hmm. in the hopes that they have the opportunity for a life of dignity, of the opportunity to send money back mm -hmm. home and take care of their families that they have often been denied elsewhere. I want to ask you, my sis, uh, what, uh, Melky, what is your reaction to when you first saw the images and maybe some of the conversations you heard around them or didn't hear? So the, the first time I heard about what was going on in, on the Texas border was right when it was happening. When I first heard about it, there were about 5,000 people there. And I was just in shock that, in the fact that it wasn't on every major news channel. Like I was turning on the news channel to see when were we going to start to talk about the fact that Haitian migrants were in Texas. And you saw that gentleman, whether you want to call it a rain or you want to call it a whip, and you saw that he had food in his hand. And that food was probably to feed his family, his wife and his kids. And the way that he was treated by the Border Patrol agents, come on, that was nothing uh, beyond being straight animalistic. France, I want to talk about the politics just for a brief moment. Uh, typically, uh, you know, I think most Americans tend to associate very strict, hardline immigration policies um, as right-leaning, Republican-leaning, uh, and associated with that political aisle. However, uh, as, you know, we're, we're hearing and seeing, and as Melky just pointed out, those visuals that everyone has seen now of the, uh, what really harkens back to slave patrols, but now they're called border patrols, wrangling uh, black American, or black people, rather, Haitians in this case. Uh, this is happening under a Democratic administration, that of Joe Biden. So how important is it that you think that people understand that this is a, a bipartisan issue, this anti black immigration uh, system is bipartisan. Some of the worst conditions that Haitians have faced in terms of immigration and some of the toughest immigration policies we've seen have actually been under Democratic presidents. We can follow that with the, the President Clinton after um, 
the democratically elected president of Haiti was taken out of power with the support of the U.S. government. Haitians who were fleeing the military junta and the violence at that point were put at Gitmo long before 9-11 uh, and things like that, because that is where Haitians were held, abused, raped, and then sent to die. And another point. When U.S. aid comes to Haiti, you often see that it comes on ships. That's intentional because those ships remain in Haitian waters. Those ships are U.S. Coast Guards that remain in Haitian waters to ensure that Haitians don't take boats and don't flee. So Haitians, we, we don't even have access to our own waters or international waters. So mm -hmm. this policies have continued throughout Obama administration. Obama was a deporter in chief. It's really important for us to note, especially as elections come up, that is, it is the Democrats who have gone out of their way to make it impossible for black people to survive in their countries and for black people to migrate out and seek a better life in the U.S. What can people do other than be heartbroken and outraged? What are the steps? Where, the, uh, where can they either send resources or pick up the phone and advocate for something that improves the life of Haitian people trying to seek asylum here in America? I think as we fight for Black Lives Matter and the rights of, of Black people and other people of color in the U.S., we need to make immigration reform part of that fight. Lastly, another suggestion is that the Biden administration was willing to recognize that Haiti was too unstable to return people to an extended temp-protected status. If they can recognize that temporary protected status should be extended, that status should also be extended to include the migrants at the border, because if, if TPS is necessary and you're saying that people can't go back to Haiti now, then they can't go back if they came across the border. The fact of the matter is that the Haitian plight is the African-American plight. We are all in a country where us as black, brown and black people live in a different world, a world where we see policies and rules and, and, and things are different for people who are of a lighter shade than us. And so I'm going to challenge people who look like me, whether you're from America, whether you're from Jamaica, as long as you're in America, that you look and you see. Who needs an alarm in the morning? when McDonald's has sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddles and a breakfast cutoff. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Those Haitian mm -hmm. migrants, and you see yourself in them. You see a Haitian migrant mm -hmm. holding on to his little baby, and he's trying to cross the river. You think about your ancestors 200 years ago who crossed that river to try to get mm -hmm. to freedom, because for him, essentially, it's the same thing. I love it, and I know someone... Uh, very prolific by the name of Toni Morrison said, once you find your freedom, it is beholden upon you to do the work of helping others find theirs. Uh, with that, France Francois, Melky Jean, Queens, we appreciate you both for dropping important knowledge on this important conversation. Now up ahead, the CEO of Gunna's new in-school grocery store discusses how they're feeding families in need. But up next, Usain Bolt shows some love for Shakari Richardson and a Kobe Bryant-designed watch goes for $10 million on auction. You won't believe it. We've got much more Revolt Black News after this. Welcome back to Revolt Black News. 
We've got your special guest correspondent, Mandy B, all over your weekly entertainment headlines. In the people's case against R. Kelly in New York City, the prosecution has rested and the defense has begun their arguments to combat five weeks and 11 testimonies from accusers, six of whom testified being underage during their time with the singer. Among the testimonies was Kelly's longtime executive assistant, Dana Copeland, who recounted her experience on Good Morning America. They asked me during the trial, um, did you notice their reaction with males? And I did. Uh, they, they didn't want to speak to the males. In fact, sometimes they would ask me to interact with the males. So they didn't want to speak to the males, or were they told not to speak to the males? Well, that part piece I can't speak to because I don't know if they were told, but I would say that you can pretty much surmise that that was probably the case. They ranged in ages, no one under 18. In fact, um, when this case came up, I'm reading that women are locked up um, and, you know, kidnapped and, and these things, things of that nature. And that's not what I'm seeing. I'm not seeing anybody that's trying to leave or any locked doors. Every woman that's left has walked right out the door. The judge announced jury deliberations and are expected to begin as early as next week. Congratulations are in order for Atlanta rapper Young Jeezy and wife Jeannie Mai, who are expecting their first child. Mai made the announcement co-hosting the season premiere of The Real earlier this week. It's been really hard to keep all of these secrets for you guys because we had so much to reveal here at the show, including the fact that I am pregnant. <laughs> and in more positive news, pop star Lil Nas X has made history as his country trek Old Town Road has been certified 15 times platinum. My goodness, that's a lot. No other artist has ever accomplished this feat. The announcement came the same day as Lil Nas X made his studio album debut with Montero. And from staying on track to hitting the track, Usain Bolt spoke with Revolt TV about Olympic newcomer Shikari Richardson. The Olympic great had some kind words of advice, adding that he thinks she brings a different spike to the track and field. And praised the runner for her energy, Shikari Richardson recently received backlash after testing positive for marijuana and being suspended from running in the 2021 Tokyo Olympics by the World Anti-Doping Agency. There's a lot more in entertainment to discuss, so let's get into it. Joining me this week are media personalities, Jason Carter, my Libra brother, and Sibley Skull. Let's get into it, guys. Why is it, when it comes to sports like the NBA, marijuana is becoming a normalcy, yet in sports like track and field, we still see such harsh repercussions? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because in 2004, the World Anti-Doping Agency entered cannabis into the ban list, right? Fast forward seven, seven years later, 2011, they're saying, hey, the reason why this exists is because that substance um, has calming effects and also just a lot, of, a lot of things that were kind of antithetical to what they're saying now. Your question is, why does the NBA have a softer approach than the Olympics? Well, you have the IOC, right? And the Olympics are... Though on the world stage, you have athletes from all over the world that are coming to compete. So I would think integrity at the core is where it's at, but also enter how in black culture, marijuana and cannabis, that's like barbecue and, and, and collard greens, right? That's something that's ingrained in, in, in our culture. And we have a affinity for 
for that and we view it as something that is a positive and not the gateway drug to to everything else that it's been seen by our non-POC counterparts. So I think the NBA has a has a more lax stance on it because they see it through the, the lens of culture. Also, if you enter music, Drake says, rappers and music, they're synonymous. They wanna be us, we wanna be them. And so in music also, you have Doggy Style, The Chronic, so many albums of the 90s and even now that are saying, hey, cannabis is good. It's good for cataracts. It's good for a lot of things. I think, and I would imagine that WADA, the World Anti-Doping Agency is like listening to what people are saying and thinking, okay, let us walk this back a little bit or let us dive deeper to get a more salient view on what cannabis is doing for people in 2021. If you want Mamba mentality like the late, great Kobe Bryant, you might consider a watch for discipline. The only thing is this one will cost you $10 million. The Ublo watch appropriately named the Black Mamba designed by the late Kobe Bryant himself is hitting the auction block. Luxury asset advisory firm GDGC Enterprises will host the auction and plans to donate $50,000 from the sale to the Make-A-Wish Foundation. How cool is that, guys? Sibley, what are your thoughts on that? I like that. You know what? I was trying to look it up. I need to see what it looks like. It's it's cool that um, there's only, I believe, three, right? That they did of these three of them are made out of 250 and they're 18 karat rose gold. I think it's great. I love that they are, you know, giving 50% of the proceeds or 50K to make a wish foundation. I think that's great. Anyways, guys, let's wrap up by talking fashion. Superstar Rihanna has returned with the third with the trailer for the third collection of Savage X Fenty. Guys, I was a fan of the first two and I'm super excited. The special is set to air on Amazon Prime later this month and will feature performances from Nas, Bia, Bottega in the Bodega, you know, <laughs> Jasmine Sullivan and more. The collection will be released in tandem with the volume three show. What are we looking forward now to the most about this fashion show? And have you guys also watched the previous one? Of course. Oh, yeah. Okay, first of all, this this trailer was dripping with sex, testosterone, androgyny, everything yummy and delicious that we needed for 2021. Also, I mean, you have choreography from Paris Goebel, yet again, that kills the game for Rihanna. And then the amalgamation of different, I don't know, heightened sensory experiences that Rihanna brings to this show is otherworldly, truly. Entering men's fashion into this now, right? And then it's just... There's nothing like this on TV. Remember when the Victoria's Secret Fashion Show was it? Like, that was like the highlight of the year. Christmas, you watched the Vicky Secret Fashion Show. Now, it's like Rihanna, who, by the way, is a nine-time Grammy Award-winning force in this business, has become a millionaire just off of, a billionaire, I'm sorry, just off of her enterprises Billion. alone. Put the, put the B there, Jason. The B, right? <laughs> I'm loving her so much, too, now with her and ASAP out and just, like, I feel like she's more out there and speaking more. We didn't get that from her a lot, you know, and she was always keeping it on social. I love that she's so outspoken and I love what she does for every person, color, race, everything that you are. She represents that on shows. Yeah, everything. Right. Thank you so much for joining me, Jason and Sibley. Up next, we have a conversation surrounding the mayoral race in Metro Atlanta with Dante Carter. More Revolt Black News coming your way.
Welcome back to Revolt Black News. Now we're going to kick off our mayoral race series for the greater Atlanta area because there's actually a voter registration deadline approaching on October 4th. Joining me now is Sandy Springs mayoral candidate and potentially its first black mayor, Mr. Dante Carter. Welcome to the show, brother. Thank you so much. How are you doing today? Excellent. Now, Dante, you have a professional background in broadcast journalism. You've also worked in the Fulton County District Attorney's Office, and then you started your own PR firm. So tell us a little bit about how this diverse professional experience will prepare you well to be the mayor of Sandy Springs. I think it prepares me well to be the next mayor of Sandy Springs because I'm bringing a, a diverse experience to the table. Um, with uh, Especially with my PR firm, you know, we, we worked on the cases of providing exposure for the Ahmaud Arbery case. We worked with mm. attorney Gerald Green. Many of the attorneys went um, in the surviving R. Kelly case. And uh, we, we've done the same with, with the Jimmy Atchison case here in Atlanta. Everybody loves McDonald's fries. So yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. We brought so much exposure to that case, it forced the feds to take a look at body cameras and having those used on their field agents. And so from uh, from the beginning of my career to the end, I really worked on changing policies that, that benefit our community and really provide equity to us all. And that's what I'm bringing to the table. Right, right now, we've, um, we don't have anybody in office that, that looks like the other 50% of the population here in Sandy Springs, and we've got to change that. We, we got to put people in office that understand those plights and that are going to work and fight for change. And throughout my career, I've, I've shown that I'm a fighter. I sh I've shown that that's what I do. And that's what I'm going to do as mayor here in the city of Sandy Springs. All right. Now, also, you are running against a Republican incumbent, Date, Mayor Rusty Paul. He's serving his second term. Uh, as you say, he does not look like us. Um, what do you think makes uh, you different other than obviously the race? What, what critiques would you have of your opponent? <laughs> you know, uh, the reality is, is, is COVID has, has really hit this entire nation hard. Um, in Sandy Springs, we've got Scottish Rite, we've got Northside, um, we've got St. Joe's Hospital. We've got three extremely large and busy hospitals here in, in, in Sandy Springs. Our doctors are overburdened. Mm -hmm. They're overworked. Um, oh. They're fighting to get beds for their patients. And so when, when we're talking about what he's done, it's, it's a complete F. We've got housing affordability mm -hmm. issues. Uh, more than 90% of our first responders can't afford to live in the city. That doesn't even include our teachers, um, our working families. And so we need somebody that's focused on the majority of Sandy Springs and not a small, loud minority, because that's what's hurting us, is impacting us. And so when we talk about what sets me apart is the ability to see a much larger group of people here in the city of Sandy Springs. And those groups, we're going to make an impact for all right. Uh, let's say we're talking in a, a little bit and all of a sudden it's Mayor Carter. Uh, what does Mayor Carter do on his first day, uh, at first day as a elected mayor? Uh, you know, um, I'm going to be frank. I'm going to be real. But I mean, what we need on the first day is bold and courageous leadership. And when I talk about bold and courageous leadership, mm. I'm speaking specifically about um, what I've gotten from listening to um, the doctors about mandating vaccines. We've really got to ensure that we can get out. I've got a three-year-old daughter. I want to ensure that, that mm. she's got a right, that she's able to embrace her right to live, right? Um, and then we've also got to take it a step further. People don't understand how much power mayors have. During the civil rights movement, uh, you know, our leaders, Dr. King, all of them, they were marching against the mayors, the city council folks, the county commissioners, 
those were the folks who stood in the way of progress. And the president had to intervene because those folks stood in the way of progress. So when we talk about those first day initiatives, we got to talk about going back and signing the George Floyd missing bill. We can do that locally. We've got to get people in the office that can see that. So that's something I'm going to fight for. I'm going to tackle voting rights. You know, we've we've been endorsed by Stacey Abrams in Fair Fight, and that's because um, uh, earlier this year um, we put together that protest here in Georgia that kicked things off nationally with fighting for voter rights. And those are things that we're going to work to do. But you got to be in those executive seats to make a change. The president, the governor, the mayor. And that's why I'm fighting to get in the seat so that we can take care of our citizens. I can tell. I like that enthusiasm. Before we let you Thanks. go, Dante, you've told us about a lot of your policy plans as mayor, including uh, local justice uh, reform acts and things of this nature. One thing is, is on a lot of people's minds right now is the increasing wealth gap between black and white Americans. Can you talk a little bit about uh, maybe some policy plans or agenda items you'd like to see happen uh, in your community as it relates to black home ownership and other wealth building mechanisms? You've got a city that's nearly 50% minority and they're not getting a fair shake at government contracts. So we've got to address those things. And we've got to put a policy and a plan in place that gives black business owners and Hispanic business owners and women-led businesses in the city of Sandy Springs, strong opportunities um, to win those, those, those contracts. What's happening now is it's a good old boy system. Again, we've got six Fortune 500 companies here in the city of Sandy Springs. There's a lot of money, and I, I think that people get so caught up in, in the money and what it looks like that they forget about what equity across the board looks like. And so mm. we've got to come up with strong plans, and that's, um, that's one of the things that I've been doing here the last two weeks specifically is going out, speaking to um, Latinx and Hispanic business owners, black business owners, really finding what do they want. All right, Dante. Where can viewers who want to learn more about you and your campaign go for resources? Is, are there websites or social media places you can direct us? All in advance, of course, of this November 2nd general election. Yeah, um, they can check me out on um, uh, com. Uh, we got a ton of great resources where you can early vote, where you can uh, mail in your ballots. We got all that information up there. And um, if you want to tune in to us on social media, it's Dante for Mayor on all social media platforms. All right, Dante Carter, brother, thank you so much for joining us. And we here at Revolt wish you the very best on the campaign trail. Thank you so much, and I appreciate the time. Okay, shifting now from the mayoral race, we check in on justice from a different side. So, what exactly is going down? Well, this show keeps up the fight for justice each and every week. But you better believe that when we say justice, that includes environmental justice. So here are three questions. Question one, what if we don't do anything at all? Well, the United Nations Climate Change Report said just last month that we're in a, quote, code red of humanity and that we are reaching unprecedented extreme temperatures. So from rising sea levels to waste, we have to look at the damage and then pose question two. Which is the bigger problem, the climate itself or sustaining the status quo? And that brings me to question three. What can we do about it? Well, actually, there's a whole lot we can do. And we can start by handing it over to the good folks at Levi's because their approach to fashion consumption is simple. And it doesn't start tomorrow, it starts today by using high quality products that are made more responsibly to last longer levi's is committed to the collective sustainability that it will take to combat the urgent climate clock we're all on and listen in doing so levi asks everybody to buy better wear longer 
global clothing consumption has doubled in the last 15 years. We can change that. When we make better, we can buy better. And when we buy better, we can wear longer. When we wear longer, we can buy less. When we buy less, we can waste less. And when we waste less, we can change for good. All right, we hope you were able to come away with a couple of tangible things to implement in your lives when it comes to environmental justice. Because the truth is this, sure, it might be an opportune time to talk about climate, but if you really understand the severity of this situation, then you realize we've got to be about the climate from here on out. And that's why Levi's call to action is so important, because we can start with something as simple as what we're wearing. Buy better, wear longer, says it all. Let's feel good improving the environment and look good while we're doing it. All right, y'all, listen, we've got more Revolt Black News after this commercial break, so stay with us. Welcome back to Revolt Black News. I'm your guest correspondent, Rochelle Ritchie. Now, last week, we saw Elon Musk's SpaceX send the first civilian crew into orbit, including Scion Proctor, who became the first black woman to pilot a spacecraft. Now, as the conversation around space exploration and accessibility grows, we wanted to tap in with black leaders in science and tech. And so Revolt caught up with former NASA engineer and STEM enthusiast, Deja Williams, who shared her mission to educate and excite black students about space. Let's take a look. It's simple, let me prove it. We gotta keep improving. We gotta get these grades, a degree what we pursuing. I'ma show you how. Hi, I am Deja Williams. I am 27 years old. I'm from St. Louis, Missouri. I'm a former NASA rocket scientist, but now I am a professor at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and I'm also an educational rapper. The field of STEM has changed my life in so many ways. Where I see the future of space and tech for African Americans, um, I, I'm hoping that that first spaceship to Mars, that some of us are on it. And I hope that we get to, you know, have a day on a, a new planet. I, I'm really into- If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. Bada -ba -ba -ba. At participating McDonald's. Blockchain technology, I'm, I'm hoping it's like the next form of the internet. And I'm hoping that African-Americans can take advantage of this new uh, frontier that's happening and, and build our wealth just like other cultures have. Thanks for Vote for allowing me to come on here and speak about space and tech um, in the black community. I hope this segment helps at least one 
young black student aspiring to become an engineer or a technologist or anything in the STEM field that will help our community. Until next time. Thank you so much, Deja. So let's continue this conversation about STEM and its future. Joining me now is Caleb Anderson, a 13-year-old freshman engineer student at Georgia Tech University, and Boyd Clewis, a self-made cybersecurity expert. Let's get into it. Caleb, I want to first start with you. I'm so excited um, to speak with you. I read all about you all over the news. I'm so fascinated by your story, but I do want you to tell me a little bit about how at such a young age you, you started to get into STEM and what sort of influenced your interests. Honestly, I think it was a, really a combination of a lot of things, mostly my parents that, you know, um, I think they um, were, were sort of one of the people who first saw that STEM was going to be, you know, sort of the future. They sort of cultivated my gift at a very young age, and, you know, they um, opened you, they opened me to a lot of things in, you know, science, technology, engineering, and math, and sort of, you know, um, through that, you know, I found what I wanted to do. And tell me a little bit about what that is. What exactly do you want to do? Um, hopefully, you know, I can become, you know, an aerospace engineer. That's my major. That's what I'm studying, which is, you know, I'm basically an engineer that designs anything that flies from, you know, parachutes to gliders or rockets to airplanes. So, you know, um, that's something that, you know, I'm pretty interested in, especially, you know, the rocketry aspect of it. So Boyd, as you listen to Caleb talk, I'm sure that he is inspiring you, even though he is obviously much younger. Um, but you're in the cybersecurity space um, and engineering and all of that, and you actually are self-taught. Tell me a little bit about how difficult it was for you to get into that space and the challenges of doing so as a Black American. So first of all, I'm extremely impressed with Caleb. I am the father of three young boys, and all they want to do is play video games. <laughs> so I'm, I admire you. Uh, it was actually challenging getting started in the IT space being self-taught because the industry is primarily focused on hiring people that have IT certifications. But what I was able to do was demonstrate the skills and the actually ability to do the job instead of the certifications. And I found a company here in Dallas when I was younger that gave me the opportunity to show what I could do. And then tell me some of the misconceptions. And this is a question for both of you, um, but I'll start with Caleb to answer this. Caleb, what do you think is one of the biggest misconceptions about STEM? I think a lot of people under sort of almost underestimate it. You know, um, a lot of kids, you know, they either want to go into athletics, you know, they want to go into sports or, you know, um, you see all these kids that want to become, you know, um, lawyers or writers or singers or actors or whatever. I think that going to STEM is not only a safer path, but it's also something that's really helping, you know, humanity. You know, um, most of the stuff that I mentioned is just for entertainment, right? But um you know, becoming, going into STEM is really for, you know, um, the advancement of, you know, the human race. And I think that's very important. Yeah, certainly so. And, and, and boy, to you, the same question, maybe more so from, you know, as an adult man, uh, the, the misconception that people might have about the field. Yeah, I think one of the biggest misconceptions about STEM is people thinking that they need to have above average intelligence 
it's funny to me when I talk to someone, I mentioned I'm in IT and their first thing is, man, you must be smart. I'm like, dude, I got a high school diploma. You don't necessarily have to be a genius with this, but it's funny. It's the same people that are saying you must be a genius that can operate computers, cell phones, which are mini PCs in their pockets. They can play video games. What I'm saying is STEM is really about application of learned skills. And I think with the right time and the right focus, you can learn pretty much how to do anything, especially if it's given to you in a structured framework that you can implement. Most people just undervalue themselves. And I got to take a stab at Hollywood. When they show these hackers and IT professionals in these movies, they have them doing these incredible things that it doesn't really work like that. So there's a big misconception around levels of intelligence needed to be um, a professional in the STEM. Got it. And then Boyd, for you, um, what do you think are some of the important resources that especially need to be um, instilled in our education system so that people as young as Caleb and even younger are able to see the benefits of going into STEM, especially because it's been named sort of the careers of the future? Yeah, so first of all, in terms of careers of the future right now, specifically in the IT cybersecurity space, there's about 3.5 million jobs that are unfilled right now because a lack of professionals. So one of the things that I think is important to happen is, and specifically for the black community, we need to retrain. And, and it starts at, at home. It's like, if you don't raise your kids, pop culture will. And right now, pop culture isn't telling your kids to go into STEM. It's telling them that you can have money, you can have cars by being an entertainer or doing some other types of things. But you could actually live a really comfortable life by just with your brain power going into STEM, going into engineering, IT. So I think it's important that our education system actually makes the investment into our, our teens, into our young students where there's programs that will challenge them mentally, teach them how to think and not just to pass exams. So when they grow up, they can make informed decisions about their careers. Caleb and Boyd, thank you so much for having this very important conversation with me. I wish both of you the best of luck. And we'll have more Revolt Black news right after this. Welcome back to Revolt Black News. I'm guest correspondent Christina Granville, and today I'll be joined by Gooder founder Jasmine Crow. Jasmine has recently teamed up with Atlanta rapper Gunner to incorporate an in-house grocery store servicing over 900 students at McNair Middle School right here in College Park. And we also want to welcome principal of McNair Middle School, John Madden. Let's talk more about this amazing venture. Well, I am so excited to have you guys join this amazing conversation because what's going on at McNair Middle School, I think needs to be going on everywhere. So the first question has to be for, for Jasmine. Um, what was your mission behind Gooder? You know, I've been feeding people that have been experiencing homelessness and hunger really for about a decade. I started mm -hmm. first in Atlanta in 2013 
And I guess my vision was just always to serve people with dignity and give people quality food. And that really led me to starting Gooder in 2017. And our vision and our mission is to feed more, waste less. So we want businesses to waste less food. We want communities to join us in feeding more people. Herb, how many pounds do we waste food per year? 72 billion. So 72 billion pounds of food goes to waste every year. So it's a lot of food. Crazy. So yeah. how did you link up with Rapper Gunner? I mean, what, I, did you, were you aware that this was his alma mater at, uh, at McNair Middle School? You know, I've been working with Gunner since 2018. I actually am good friends with his manager. And so all the time when it's time to do something good, you know, I always get a call. And this year it was like, hey, we want to do something for back to school. And I said, let's do something that's sustainable. Let's not do another, you know, book bag drive. Let's do something that will last. Now it's here. All right, so Principal Madden, look, I know the response had to be super crazy and overwhelming, especially with Gunner coming back to McNair Middle School. How was the response from the kids? It was it was amazing. Um, it was it was on a, a level that I've never seen um, our students in the building. Um, when he the buzz came that he was in the building because it was it was all a surprise. Okay. And when the buzz came that he was in the building, it was like it was it was on a thousand. And especially when I'm going to actually brought down the shoes that he wanted students. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. To have um, a class was selected for brand new shoes, and he actually personally brought the shoes down to them. And he also went to a classroom um, to just surprise a particular classroom, and they were able to ask him impromptu questions, and he answered them. And um, they're just something that the kids are never going to forget. I mean, that's that's really what it's all about is having those experiences and having those memories to know that somebody that was once in your shoes came back to that same exact school and really just sold another seed. That's such a blessing. So, Jasmine, do you plan on teaming up with any other schools to implement the same kind of store or something similar across the country? Yes, you better believe I've been messaging every rapper now. They, I'm hitting them up on Instagram and Twitter. So I haven't received any responses yet, but you believe it. I've, I've talked to, you know, Memphis, uh, Houston, Miami, LA rappers from New York. So I've been messaging everybody and saying like, listen, we need to do this in your school because this is very needed. This is what it means to meet kids where they are. It is such an amazing initiative that I think everybody needs to join. And really quick, before we let you go, can you tell us how does this actually work? Can students just go whenever they want to get food and clothes? How does it actually work? Yeah, I think that's been the funny story because people are like, oh, those kids are going to clean it out in a day. And we're like, no, it doesn't work like that. Um, so we worked with Principal Madden. He drafted a letter. It went out to the um, parents and guardians of all of the students, letting them know that that resource is available. We built a special site and app where families can go on 
register, request items that they need. And once that request comes in, the front office will also get an alert and the student is able to go in and be escorted into the store. The only question we ask on the registration is just how many kids are in the household and like how large the family size is. Mm -hmm. And that's good to know as people are escorting them and helping them shop. If they see like, hey, this is a family size of 10, they can maybe yeah. say like, maybe you need cereal and oatmeal <laughs> to kind of um, make sure that there's enough food in the house for the family. And if the mom needs to get some food for their household, they're able to come in and shop too. That is so, that is, that is just so awesome. It's such a blessing. So Principal Madden, how can uh, one donate to the school? Actually, they would just have to call the school, get in touch with my secretary and um, just let us know what exactly they want to donate, clothes, food. If anyone wants to donate anything, you know, to the school, just come up, talk to my secretary, and we'll make that happen. This has been such an amazing conversation. Thank you so much, Jasmine Crow, for all the work that you're doing with Gooder. And to Principal Madden, thank you so much for the work that you're doing over there at McNair Middle School. Listen, if you guys would like to donate, or if you guys would like to get more information about what they're doing, Please make sure you send your resources and you reach out to them, okay? Listen, thank you guys so much for watching. Back over to you, Ebony. Thank you so much, Christina. Now, before we go, we'd like to acknowledge the vice chairman of Revolt Network, our very own Andre Harrell, on what would have been his 61st birthday this Sunday. Andre was a major force in hip-hop music, and his contributions to the culture are simply timeless. Rest in power, Mr. Harrell. For Revolt Black News, I'm Ebony K. Williams. See you next time. needs an alarm in the morning when McDonald's has sausage egg and cheese McGriddles and a breakfast cut off ba da ba ba ba